Well, good morning, City Light Lincoln. Uh, I'm so happy to be with all of you online. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, My name is Austin, one of the pastors here, and uh, excited to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said last week, I'm taking a sabbatical in the month of June, so this is my last sermon uh, for the next month, but you guys are going to be great. Skylar, Brett, Mo, they're going to bring it. It's going to be amazing. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, that's where we're going to be. My question for you as we start is, when's the last time you put a puzzle together? Okay, I, I don't know if like, that's a common thing anymore. My family did it when I was younger. Um, but about four years ago, when uh, Mo and Colleen and Kristen and I were planting the church, we went to a church planting assessment. And the job for this you know, three, four-day intensive was to assess whether or not we could successfully plant a church. Can we handle the pressure? Where are going to be our blind spots? All this stuff. It was intense, okay? And um, so we're going through it. They're interviewing us and asking us questions and looking at us in every scenario. And, uh, and towards, the, towards the end of it, they gave us this thousand-piece puzzle between all of us. So it was the Dixons and us, Edwards, and then it was three other church-planting couples. And so as the 10 of us are hanging out, or what is that? Yeah, yeah, hanging out around the table, they give us this thousand-piece puzzle. And so they're trying to see, you know, what, who, who's going to step up? Who's going to lead the charge? Who's going to help out? Who's going to make a joke of it? Me, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. And, uh, and so we're going through and, uh, and we're putting this together. And I remember, I'll never forget, we had put the edge all the way together except for one piece, right? First thing you do is you put the edge of the, of the, um, of the puzzle together. And we're missing this one single piece. And there was this collective belief among all of us, these couples, that if we find this one piece then the rest of it will come together. And so we were like frantically searching. They ended up interrupting us, the assessors, and going, hey, actually, we didn't give you all the pieces. We just wanted to see how you guys were interact. It was twisted, okay? But when I think of that puzzle and I look at Matthew 6, I think it starts to make sense a little bit because what we do with our lives is we kind of have this proverbial puzzle of life, and we think that if we just have this one piece, then the rest of it will come together. And we frantically search, we busy ourselves trying to look for this one piece that if we get it, then finally the rest will come together. And so what we do is we tell ourselves, I'll finally have peace when? And we do it our whole lives. So it's like, I'll finally have peace once I make the varsity sports team. And then you do and you're worried about letting people down and, and, uh, and, and not living up to expectations. Well, well, I'll finally stop worrying when I get the ACT number I'm, I've been, score I've been trying to get and I get into that college. But then you're anxious about if you chose the right major and will there be jobs after graduation and, and, uh, and, and all of that. And, um, and how am I going to pay off my student debt? Well, I'll finally have peace when I get the job, though. No. Then you're anxious about uh, the next raise or the next promotion. And if you really want to do this thing for the next 35 years, okay, well, I'll finally stop worrying once I find my spouse. Once I finally get married, I'll stop worrying. But then you're worried about if you have a good enough marriage and how to make it better. Well, I'll finally stop worrying once we get pregnant. I'm so excited for that but then you're worried about a healthy pregnancy and a smooth delivery. Well, we'll finally have peace once we move into the house and move out of the apartment. Then you're worried about the water heater going out and paying thousands for it and the taxes going up. I'll finally have peace once we have healthy kids. 
No, no, that peace and kids do not go together. Like, it, it, uh, you're, you're anxious about them being healthy and staying, staying healthy and growing up to be decent human beings. And I'll finally have peace when we pay off our debt. But then you're worried about if you have enough for retirement and how are you going to pay for your daughter's wedding and how are you going to get your kids to, to college and pay for them? Okay, well, I'll finally have peace once I retire and I can go sit on the beach in Florida. no. You'll be anxious about what you're going to do, and do you really have enough, and are you just going to be bored every day doing the same thing? My point is this. What we think will produce peace actually produces anxiety. And we busy our lives searching for this proverbial piece to the puzzle that everything else will fall together, and we are endlessly searching. And I'm here to say in Matthew 6 that the search is over. Jesus is exclusively and making it abundantly clear that he is the only source of peace, that the only way you and I are going to be cured from our worry, the remedy for our anxiety is in the arms of our loving Father, knowing that he loves us, he cares for us, he sees us. That's where you're going to find peace, not in the long list that we try to convince ourselves of. And so let's jump in Matthew 6 and see just what Jesus says about this. Matthew 6, verse 25, we'll start. Now, this verse, 25, is the thesis statement for the whole passage. People focus on verse 33 and 34, which are great verses. You should memorize them. But verse 25 is the thesis statement. Every other verse points back to this and reflects from this argument. Here's his main argument. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, this is the key. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, so Jesus says don't be anxious three times in this passage. Okay, right there, verse 25, then in verse 31, and he ends it in verse 34. And then Jesus brings up anxiety three other times other than those verses. And so this is a huge deal for Jesus. It's a really important piece of our sermon. It's the whole topic of it, right, of anxiety and worry. So I think it's important that we understand worry and anxiety a little better. Now, did you know that from generation to generation, we are getting more anxious? From the baby boomers to Gen X to millennials and now Gen Z, each generation is progressively three times more likely to be anxious than the previous generation. So if you're a millennial like me, we are three times more likely to be anxious or depressed than my parents who are Gen Xs. And my little sister who's 19, who's a Gen Z, is three times more likely to be anxious or depressed, depressed than I am. It's crazy that we're getting progressively more anxious as time goes on. And so to define anxiety and worry, I looked at a bunch of different ones, and I felt like David Platt um, was the, gave the most clear, especially considering this passage. Here's his definition of anxiety and worry to make sure we're on the same page. He says, anxiety or worry are carrying concerns in this world in such a way that we lose perspective on life and or lose trust in God. I'm going to say it again. Anxiety and worry is carrying concerns in this world in such a way that we lose perspective on life and or lose trust in God. Okay. Now, let me pause really quick. 
I know that there are plenty of people listening right now or, or watching that are diagnosed with clinical anxiety or depression. And I want to let you know that Jesus isn't speaking here about clinical anxiety. He doesn't say, don't be clinically anxious. Right now, Jesus is addressing a common anxiety that we all struggle with, right? This carrying concerns that makes us lose perspective and lose trust in God. And so for my brothers and sisters that struggle and are walking through clinical anxiety or depression, I want you to know that we're here for you and we love you. Um, this is speaking more towards a common anxiety, not clinical. Now, to be clear, as we're progressing, uh, it is good to be concerned and care for something or someone, okay? It's not a bad thing, but when care and concern turn into anxiety and worry is when we lose perspective on life and or lose trust in God. So in other words, the encouragement is be concerned and care deeply, but don't let it produce irrational thoughts or let you convince yourself that God doesn't see, care, or will provide, okay? So that's kind of the push here. Now, we have a ton of tactics to fight worry. Whether you know it or not, you are good in some regard at fighting worry because we deal with it every single day, and we do a lot of different things. We're going to talk about those later in the sermon, but right now I want to address one of the most common, which is distracting ourselves. When we're worried, when we're stressed, we're going, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay down and watch Netflix. I just need to binge this. I am stressed. When we're overwhelmed, I'm going to go on a run. When we're anxious or worried, I just need to do something mindless. We are so good. We think that the cure to anxiety is to turn our minds off. And yet in these verses, Jesus argues that we need to turn our minds on, that we need to genuinely and rationally think. And that thought on worry and anxiety will actually produce peace if we rightly think about God and his relationship to us. So the cure is not to shut your mind off and just turn the radio up and act like it's not there. You with me? And so in verse 25, Jesus says, don't be anxious, don't worry. He says about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, or your clothes. Okay, five different things. Now, these are pretty bare minimum necessities for life, right? This isn't extravagant, but it does consume. We need a body, we need life, we need food, water, and we need clothing. So it kind of overcomes uh, this idea of what we would need to actually live and survive and hopefully thrive. But the problem with some of those is that not many of us have ever worried about the next meal that we're going to have. Not many of you have opened up your closet really anxious, hoping that there's going to be clothes in there. But for them then, Jesus' original audience, this was, this was everything to them. This is what they would worry about on a daily basis. See, they didn't have all the excess we have. And so food, water, and clothing was life. That was what you needed, and you would be good. This is what they would worry about that Jesus addresses. So what is it for you? Well, what do you worry about? Is it the food you eat, the bills that you need to pay, the shoes that you wear, the car starting up so you can actually get to work, the name brand clothes that you have on, your health, permitting you to enjoy life, your friendships, or lack thereof? And just to make sure that you know that I need these verses just as much as anyone else listening, I worry a lot. And what's unique about my life is that I literally never worried or was anxious until I planted this church and started having kids, okay? Y'all messed me up, okay? My hairline's going back. I'm getting some grays. Like, like you guys and Gracie and Haddon have messed me up, and I am happy about it. I'm okay. But honestly, 
I am worried about how COVID-19 will affect our church. Will there be people in our church that lose their lives because of this? Will there be people that lose their jobs? How is it going to affect us financially as a church? Um, are we going to gather too early and risk health? Are we going to gather too late and people are frustrated? Um, are we doing enough to help? I'm worried about how COVID-19 will affect our church. I'm worried about retirement. I know I'm 28 years old, but I'm worried. Are we, are we not putting enough to retirement? Are we not going to be okay? Are we putting too much to retirement and not investing more in the church and God's kingdom? I'm worried about letting my family down and being a distracted dad, too busy and, uh, and too consumed with whatever else is going on. I'm worried that I'm not the pastor that I should be. I'm worried that I'm going to fail and I'm going to hurt people along the way. I mean, the list goes on and on. But just so you know, I am with you on worry. It might be on different topics and to different extents, but I need these words from Jesus just as much as you do. And so here's how Jesus aims to eliminate anxiety. Verse 25, remember, this is the thesis statement. This is key. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And so the argument here is from lesser to greater, and it's mind-blowing. Okay, this was so profound for me to understand what he's actually saying here. So undoubtedly, the body is more valuable than the clothes. Like my body is more valuable than this shirt or the pants or anything, right? Um, anyone can buy clothes. We give clothes away for free every year. If you want new clothes, go to Target. But if you want a new body, you're fresh out of luck. Undoubtedly, also, your life is more valuable than food. The fact that I'm living right now, that I have a soul that allows me to wake up and look around and operate and think is more valuable than a Big Mac, okay? Um, and so anyone can buy food. We waste food every single day. There's great food like Super Taco and there's miserable food like mushrooms. Anyone can buy food, but no one can buy life. If you want more food, go to Hy-Vee. If you want new, another life, you are fresh out of luck. And so here's what Jesus is saying by is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. The argument is that if God can give you a body which is infinitely valuable and unbuyable, don't you think that he's gonna provide clothes to put on that body? Like cheap clothes to put on that body. The argument here is, is, is if God is gonna give us life which is infinitely valuable and unbuyable, don't you think he's gonna give us food to sustain that life? I mean, getting a new outfit at Old Navy is 50 bucks, and, and, and buying a, um, a burrito at Chipotle is $8. And so do you seriously think that the God who gave you a body in life is going to skimp on a new outfit in lunch? No. Like, you really think your dad's going to buy you a Tesla but not let you plug in to charge at his house? That is absurd. Jesus is saying it is wild and it is wrong for you to think that we're going to trust God to give us our bodies and our lives for free, and yet he's not going to give us clothes and food. He's not going to provide for what we need on a daily basis to love him, to serve him, to live for him. Do you really think that? Infinitely valuable, totally dispensable, body, life, Food, clothes, it's like if he gives you this, surely he's going to give you this. And then Jesus continues the same argument in the next verses comparing um, the importance that we have compared to birds and, uh, and flowers, okay? Now, just as we go on to verse 26 and following, to point this out, the cure for anxiety the, the, the remedy for worry, the thing we spend millions and billions of dollars on researching and buying and getting all these things, 
Here's, here it is. Here's the remedy for anxiety. Bird watching and wildflowers. If you're worried, Jesus says you don't need all that other stuff. You need to go watch the birds and look at the flowers. Verse 26, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Are you, are you worried? Are you anxious? Are you struggling? Are you overwhelmed? Are you stressed? Look at the birds of the air. Just go outside and look. Watch them. And he says, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And this is key. Are you not of more value than they? It's the same argument. So I just want you to know something. This might be profound to you. You matter more than pigeons, okay? If you didn't know this, you matter more than pigeons. And can we collectively admit there are no worse bird out there than pigeons? Like, they're terrible. And yet somehow they just keep showing up and keep pooping on things. If God feeds these worthless pigeons, don't you think he's going to feed you? I mean, if God continues to sustain these, these pigeons, don't you think he's going to sustain you? Listen, he is the creator of the pigeon, but he is your father. It says in here, it's your heavenly father provides for them. Listen, I love my nieces and nephews. They're amazing. I love getting them gifts, but I have never bought my niece or nephew a better gift than I have my, my children. Okay, so the Morgan's kids and the Oatman's kids, they get a $30, $40 gift from me every birthday. It's awesome. But Gracie, I'm spending $150, right? It's a total difference. So he's going, do you seriously think that your dad is going to get your cousins a gift and he's not going to go even more on you? He's not going to do even more thoughtful and special? It's absurd to think that. Are you not of more value than they? You are more valuable than pigeons. And if God provides for the pigeons, surely he's going to provide for you. In verse 27, it's kind of like Jesus' side note to the argument. He goes, and by the way, which of you being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Again, this is kind of his side note. And he's going, by the way, can we all admit that worrying is a waste? Right? Like the question becomes, has worrying ever genuinely helped you? Has staying up late at night, thinking through all the options and all the outcomes for tomorrow and what it could be, has it ever actually benefited you or someone else? See, the paradox in this is that worry is less likely to expand your life and more likely to shorten your life. There is countless amounts of research out there on stress and anxiety and worry linking it to heart disease in a shortened lifespan. Jesus isn't just arguing that you can't add hours to your life. He's arguing that you can actually subtract hours from your life. One, by living a shorter life because it's consumed by worry and anxiety. But two, you're wasting your life worrying and being anxious. Worry is a waste. Now, if you guys are friends with me on Facebook, I'll post some videos or Snapchat or whatever, but I have this one wheel. It's like this electronic skateboard. It's like a go-kart wheel. It's awesome. Take it every day, hang out with the kids on it, push them on the stroller. Now, I sold mine, got a different one, and I was tracking it. No, like, I'm not even kidding. I think I tracked that one wheel package 60 times. And, and I was looking, and the worst part about tracking is the day it actually is out for delivery. And it's like, out for delivery, it'll arrive sometime between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. And you're like, that is, that's a huge span. Can you give me like three hours? And the worst part about UPS is when they give you the little note of like, we missed you, and then you can't get it that day. You have to wait till the next day. So I'm literally outside, 
and I'm writing this note, and I tape it to our door going, we're home. Our doorbell isn't really working right now, but we are home. Please leave it here or keep knocking. I don't want to miss you. I don't want to miss this. And so I have meetings all day. I'm literally writing this sermon. And so I have my phone. We have a little Nest doorbell. And I have my phone, and, uh, and it's, I have it set up, and it has the Nest doorbell open so I can see the video over our front door. Just when the UPS man comes, I'm going to run out. All that to be said, it showed up. I wasn't even looking at the time. And all of that searching, that note, all the watching on my phone, it didn't make my package come any sooner. Worrying is a waste. I have to lovingly call us into that. It's extremely unproductive and unhelpful. Jesus goes, can any of you add anything to your life by worrying? It doesn't work that way. And then he continues his argument using lilies and grass Uh, as an illustration. Look at 28 through 30 with me. Jesus continues, and and, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. You're worried, you're anxious. Go out and look at the wildflowers, right? How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Same statement. Will he not much more? It's working from lesser to greater. All right? And so um, Solomon, as he mentions him here, was the most... Rich, the richest man that's ever lived, okay? He makes Jeff Bezos look like a lower class impoverished person. It's just like, there's no way. Like, uh, he was so rich, so wealthy, had so much. It's unfathomable. Amazon, no, right? And, uh, and he's going, he's so arrayed. He decked himself out in the best outfit you could possibly imagine. It was, it was just amazing. Gold and gems and all this stuff, so much thought put into it. And he goes, despite all the money spent on that and all the thoughtfulness and all the time, Solomon never looked better than the lilies on the field and the, wild, the wildflowers in the field. Isn't that crazy to think about? And since Warren Buffett isn't into flashy, uh, flashy clothing, um, the best example I could give today is a wedding day. There's a bride on her wedding day. Now, brides get up so early and, uh, and they work so hard to look their best, and they do. They look stunning. They wake up early for makeup and hair and get the dress on. They do the whole works. And my favorite point part of, uh, of weddings is watching the bride walk and seeing the groom see his bride for the first time. It's one of the most beautiful moments. And as beautiful and as stunning as that bride is, Jesus is arguing here that even with all that early morning makeup and hair and the immaculate dress, there's never been a bride that's been more beautifully dressed than a lily in the field. And Jesus is going, man, if God dresses those lilies that a lot of people don't even ever see, don't you think he's going to do that for you too? Don't you think he's, he's going to care? Oh, and by the way, he goes, and, and, if, and if, he, if he's overseeing the grass and it's growing, but it's going to be gone tomorrow, and he clothes that, don't you think that God's going to clothe you and provide for you and care for you? That's gone in a day. You have an eternal life. And it's not worked for. It's not, they don't toil or spend. God's just providing because he loves you and he's looking out for you. Will he not much more clothe you? And so in light of all of this, Paul sums up this idea using the gospel. In Romans 8, 
uh, verse 31. So here's what he says, Romans 8, verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, so it's the same argument, just using the gospel. God gave you Jesus. Jesus is the best gift that'll ever be given for all of eternity. And if you're not exactly sure what I mean by that, God in his divine love created everything and everyone. You and I wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's initiative in creation. He gave us everything we needed, including laws to help guide us and, and, and love us and lead us into the best life that we could live, and yet we have all collectively chosen a different route. Rather than honoring him as God, we've chosen to be our own gods, our possessions, our passions, our sexuality, our money, our jobs, our success. We've collectively turned away from a loving God and chosen sin instead, which is terrible news. But the good news is that the story is an end. God didn't let the story end there. He did the unthinkable, the unfathomable. He came down to save us. He sent his son, Jesus, to save us. Our best efforts couldn't claw our way up to God, even on our best day, and so he came down to us. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived, and he went to the cross and he died the death that you and I should have died. He paid for our sins so that by faith alone, in Jesus alone, you and I can be saved forevermore. And that amazing news to think about for a moment, that he was our substitute so that we can be completely forgiven, totally acquitted of our wrong. The sins you can't forget, God chose not to remember. Through faith alone, God sees Jesus over you. Your sinful resume, drenched in guilt and pride with all the shameful wrongs that you've made, was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. And you get Jesus' perfect resume over you. It says spotless and loved and cherished and valued and adopted and perfect because of Jesus. That is over you. And if that's new to you, if this is brand new news, I wanna invite you to trust in him. Would you throw your life on that, on that truth that Jesus came and died for you? Stop trying to be your own hero. Stop trying to work your way to heaven. Stop running from God. Jesus is inviting you into a free relationship and all you have to do is place your full faith in him and commit your life to living for him and him alone. I would love to invite you into that. And this is what Romans 8.32 is saying. If God didn't spare his own son, I mean, listen, every other gift that we could be given is minor, infinitely minor compared to Jesus. A promotion at work, that's nothing compared to Jesus. Paying your mortgage, nothing compared to Jesus. Making sure your family is fed, nothing compared to Jesus. A new outfit, nothing compared to Jesus. Even one of the greatest gifts that we can be given on earth, having children, nothing compared to Jesus. That is a small gift compared to the great price that God paid in giving his son for us. And so, City Light, let the birds sing God's care over you. Let the lilies in the field shout God's provision for you. And let the gospel proclaim God's unconditional love over you. If he gave you life, surely he'll give you food. 
If he gave you a body, surely he'll give you clothes. If he, gave you, if he provides for the pigeon, surely he'll provide for you. If he dresses the temporary lilies, surely he'll give you what you need. And if he gave us Jesus, surely our God won't hold anything good back from us. This is the good news that defeats our worry. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus continues. And it just, it's kind of an afterthought. He goes, therefore, don't, don't be anxious saying, what will we eat or, or drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. And so to some degree, Jesus is saying that if you don't know God as your loving Father, if you haven't received the free grace of Jesus, if you don't understand who God is, you have a reason to be worried. The world seeks after these things. The world sits in anxiety and worry, but we know God. We know how he works. We know he loves us. We see with eyes of faith. Therefore, let's do something with that. Let that impact our lives. Don't live like people who don't know Jesus. We're different. The world has plenty of reason to worry, but children of God don't. The world has plenty of reason to worry, but children of God don't. And he continues. Here's his application point, verse 33. He says, but you... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, if we stopped at verse 32, we would naturally assume that Jesus' primary goal for us is to not worry, which is great, but it's not true. It's not complete. See, God's goal is never for us to just to refrain from something, but to replace it with something better. So the key is not just to not worry, but to do something different. So don't just refrain from worry, but replace it with greater goals. What are those goals? Seeking the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Now, fundamentally for seeking God's kingdom, it means that we are concerned for his kingdom not ours, right? Um, this is, the, this is the, the goal that we would say, God, I care. I'm sold out for your kingdom. And so in biblical times, what would happen is you'd have this city and you'd have these huge protective walls around the city to protect the kingdom. And you'd have guards on every post for every hour of every day. And, and it was to protect and to seek God's kingdom would mean that we have to take the guards down from our own kingdom. We have to let, those, let our kingdom be ambushed, and we go and we seek his kingdom. We go stand guard at his kingdom. All we want is for God's kingdom to be advanced, to enjoy his grace, to extend his grace. This is our goal. And abandoning your kingdom will be painful. And it'll mean there'll, there'll be loss and lack of comfort, but the good news is that Jesus' kingdom doesn't fade. It doesn't change. Unlike our kingdoms, Jesus' kingdom can't be overtaken or overturned. And so seek his kingdom first. With your finances, with your talents, with your time and your energy, leverage it all to build his kingdom and, and, um, and, and he'll provide every step of the way. And the second part, he says, is to seek righteousness. Now, seeking righteousness doesn't mean we seek to somehow be made right or forgiven. We already are by faith alone freely in Jesus, okay? Seeking righteousness means that we are seeking 
the righteous living that God has laid out before us. Basically, hey, live out what we've been talking about in the whole Sermon on the Mount, right? To be salt and light, to honor his law, to show mercy, to pursue purity, to commit deeply, to seek reconciliation, to love enemies, to give to the needy without anyone noticing, to pray to God in secret, to fast without an audience applauding, to invest in what Jesus is doing. That's what it means to seek righteousness, to be and live like Jesus. And I love verse 34. It's so special. He says, therefore, in light of all of that stuff we just talked about, don't be anxious. I'm going to say it again. Don't be anxious. Specifically says about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Now, I love that Jesus takes this one day at a time. Some of you are anxious right now about being anxious. You're like, I'm anxious, I'm worried, and Jesus said I shouldn't be anxious and worried, and so now I'm anxious and worried. It's a vicious cycle. How am I not supposed to worry next week? I think you need verse 34. Listen, don't worry about next week. Don't even worry about tomorrow. Focus on today. Let Jesus be the Lord of your life today. Remind yourself of this truth today and watch him do something beautiful. He goes, worrying about tomorrow doesn't make any sense. Today has enough trouble of its own. It's got enough for you to focus on. And two, those things tomorrow may never happen. Mo called this a years ago, borrowed stress. I thought it was so profound. It's like you're fixated on this thing that could happen tomorrow, but it also could not. And we worry and we worry. And it's like, if we're worrying about tomorrow, it robs us of today. If we're worrying about tomorrow, it robs us of today. And listen, this is so beautiful. He says, sufficient for the day is its own troubles. What he means is that God gives you grace that's enough for today. And he'll give you grace that's enough for tomorrow. But your grace that you're given today won't work tomorrow. Right? You need new mercies tomorrow, and Jesus gives that. And so he's going, man, I'm with you today. I'll be with you tomorrow. Take it one day at a time. Focus on these truths today, and we'll see what tomorrow brings. And so let me just make this as practical as I can, real briefly. What do you normally do when you're worried or anxious? I think there's lots of different things we do, but number one, I think there's planners. There's the planners that are listening right now. And you plan out and you think of every different option that could happen, right? How could this thing go and how could this thing go? And here's kind of what I'm worried, but I think I got a plan. The second group of people is thinkers. Now, similar with planning, you have to think, but the thinkers think of the worst case scenario, right? Which is a really slippery slope. So you're spending your time going, what's all the things that could happen bad? What could happen wrong and how can I avoid those things? Third group is the ignorers. Now, the tendency here is to just act like nothing is wrong and just kind of put a smile on and just ignore it until it goes away. It's like turning the car radio up over that weird squeaky thing in your car because you're not sure if know how to fix it or if you have the money to fix it. So there's planners, thinkers, ignorers, and lastly, there's the rationalizers, which is what I want to focus on just briefly. The rationalizers rationalize whatever they're worried about. And so the statement is, I don't need to worry because dot, 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 right? I don't need to worry because uh, we've got this much saved. True story, my wife and I moved into a home closer to the church recently, and we did um, a lot of upgrades uh, to the kitchen area and some other things. And Kristen's seeing the bills coming in and she's like, can we pay this? I'm worried. I feel stressed about finances. And I didn't go, listen, sweetheart, the Lord's provided. He's called us to this. This is going to be great. You know, I went, 
here's what we got in savings. Here's what we budgeted. Here's what we got for our tax return. And I, I literally, as answer, we don't have to worry because I'm going to rationalize it. We've got enough saved. I did, I mean, and obviously, it's good to think thoughtfully and save and all that. But the primary lead foot for worry and anxiety shouldn't be rational explanation. It should be a trust in God's provision and his goodness and his calling on our lives. I don't need to worry because you're taking the uh, prenatal vitamin and the ultrasound looked great. If you're pregnant, it's an anxious season for a couple, for sure, and yet we kind of go rationalize. It's okay, you take the prenatal, the ultrasound look good, rather than going, no, God is our good father. He's gonna provide and care, and he loves that baby even more than we do. I don't need to worry because I've got a great resume. Obviously, they're gonna take you. You're a great candidate. I don't need to worry because the CAT scan was clear and everything looks good and we're okay. I don't need to worry because I bought the extended warranty, however it goes. But let me tell you this. If the way you finish that sentence, I don't need to worry because if you don't fill that in with Jesus loves me and provides, then it's a lie and it's false assurance and it'll only produce more anxiety. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to grab your Bible or, or a piece of paper or notebook, whatever it is, and I just want you to write this simple statement. Because my father loves me, I don't need to worry about blank. You fill in the blank. Because my father loves me, I don't need to worry about blank. What is it for you? What's the most profound, fundamental thing you worry about that the good news of the gospel says you don't need to worry about that? Because my father loves me, I don't need to worry about blank. Now, let me end uh, and send you guys off with this. Um, uh, my wife recently got us a bike trailer off Facebook Marketplace, and, uh, and so we got this little bike, and, uh, and my two kids, Gracie, she's three and Haddon's about one, they're about the same weight. He's a chunk, uh, 25 pounds each, 30 pounds, they're somewhere around there. And so we put him in the, in the bike trailer, and Kristen's like, yeah, take him on a ride. And we kind of live on a hill, like our house is here, and then it goes down each side. So going away from the house is awesome. I'm like, I could do this thing for days. But then I'm going, and we're going through the park and all these streets, and then we're going uphill, and it's just exhausting. I mean, 50 or 60 pounds that I'm trying to pedal, and your boy's not in great shape right now because coronavirus, and I'm a dad, and, all, and whatever, all these excuses. But it is terrible, I'm telling you, pulling these kids. And uh, so I got home and, uh, and, took them, and took them out, and I was just like, man, that was so heavy. And as I'm pedaling up this hill, I'm thinking about this passage. And specifically, it brought to mind Proverbs 12, verse 25. Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And it's this idea of like, I think there's so many of us right now that are weighed down, that are carrying this like extra 50 or 60 pounds around. And I'm thinking, how do you live your life like that? Like, how do we live our lives? We don't even, we can't fathom what it would be like to just ride the bike on our own and just go and explore. And yet we've got 50, 60 pounds weighing us down of anxiety and worry and weight and pressure and stress and all that. And I'm going, listen to these words. He says, a good word will make him glad. The good word is that the Father loves you. The Father provides for you. The, the Father will give you what you need. He'll provide it all. And you don't have to w carry that all along. I don't think we even know what that would be like to just live worry-free, to live in the sovereignty of God that he loves us and he provides and he cares for us. And so I want to invite you today to, to live freely and lightly, to cast your cares upon God because he cares about you. And you go, God, I can't take this anymore. And he goes, I got it. 
I got you. Let me handle this. You don't have to look out for yourself because God is looking out for you. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we love you. We're so thankful for you. God, you've given us way more than we deserve, and we just want to say thank you. We haven't earned an ounce of it. And so, Father, I know for people listening right now, anxiety and worry have been weighing us down for years and decades, and we have crumbled under it. Over the hills and all that, God, and the valleys, we have crumbled under that, and we just want to say we need your help. We cannot fight worry and anxiety on our own. There is no missing puzzle piece that we need to find. God, you in your arms is where we defeat anxiety. And so convince us of your love. If you feed the birds, surely you're going to feed us. If you clothe the lilies, surely you're going to clothe us. God, if you gave us your, uh, our body and our lives, you're going to provide for us. And Jesus, since you gave yourself, surely any other thing we need is a minor gift compared to you. So convince us of that. R- rip out of us worry. Spirit of God, fill us in this moment and relieve us of worry and anxiety and fill it in place with a peace and a deep desire to seek after your kingdom alone and your righteousness. God, we love you. We do cast our cares now on you because you say you want to carry them for us. In your awesome name, amen.